This is Michael Cowan, and welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation. You need to show people the worst possible harm that that negligence could have caused, because that's what the case is about. I'm asking you to do is to focus on what you can control, because that's where the power lies. The Dalai Lama uh, has a saying that in the face of anger, justice evaporates. If you can't focus group it, you have to be very, very critical of your process. The facts aren't good, you can't create a miracle. We can agree to disagree and be zealous advocates for our clients. Quit worrying about looking perfect. You're not going to. That'll come in time. But you can still be an effective litigator. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Trial Lawyer Nation. Your source to win bigger verdicts, get more cases, and manage your law firm. And now, here's your host, noteworthy author, sought-after speaker, and renowned trial lawyer, Michael Cowan. Today on Trial Lawyer Nation, i got my partner, Mallory Peacock. We're going to talk about what we've been doing to keep our firm moving forward in the age of COVID-19 and some of the things we've been struggling with uh, in the hope that it helps you in your practice and uh, maybe gives you some ideas or at least lets you commiserate and, uh, and some of the things that we've all been working on, uh, working through together. How are you doing today, Mallory? You know, I'm doing good um, in my home office where I've been for weeks and weeks and weeks now. So, <laughs> you know, ready to get out of it, but it's not not time yet. Yep, I'm uh, sitting here in my on my back patio because I've just been indoors far too long uh, during this thing, and it just rained, and it's a nice nice morning, and I want to enjoy the enjoy the nice weather. Well, we have nice weather in Texas. It's not a common thing in the summer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I haven't, I went outside briefly, but it was still raining when I went out, so. <laughs> okay, so things are starting to open up a little bit in society, um, but we're, as a firm, have chosen not to open up yet. Uh, what are some of the things you've noticed with that? Um, you know, the good thing about not opening up right away is that you don't have a bunch of employees sort of forced to go to work and they're scared. And when people are scared, I mean, no one can work, no one can concentrate. I mean, it, it's just not a good environment. It's not an environment that I want to be in. Um, and so the good thing about not opening up is we can kind of see how it's going. And, you know, fortunately so far, it seems like after the governor um, allowed Texas to open up, there wasn't a huge spike in cases right away. So that's, I guess, good news. That is good news, although there can be a, you know, a two-week uh, lead time. And I think the, you know, statistics are a dangerous thing, too, because the, if you're just looking at the number of cases, then, you know, increased testing with the same population of positive cases will also increase the number of positive test results. And so the number I'm trying to look at is the number of hospitalizations, thinking that it probably you know, the percentage of people that need to go to the hospital probably won't change that much over time. So that would be a better sign for whether things are growing or not growing. And frankly, as a society, better a better sign for whether we're going to overwhelm our hospitals. Right. Um, but yeah, it is it is a scary thing. We, we were in a meeting earlier today making the decisions on, you know, when and whether to start partially opening back the office. And, you know, that to me is an incredibly stressful decision to make. You know, it's really stressful, but it's really, at least in my mind, um, heartwarming that our staff really, really want to return um, because they like being at the office. They like being with us. They like being around us. We want to do it safely, but I just, I really appreciate the team that we have. I'm hearing from other people that why would anybody want to go back to the office, you know, right. but, um, but our people really do. And so we're trying to figure out a way to do it safely. One thing I've been realizing, at least with myself, is that, you know, humans are really social creatures. And while we, you know, are trying to be good citizens and self-isolating, not just to protect us, but to protect others that are more vulnerable, uh, there is a, a pain and a loss from just not being around other people all the time. I mean, yes, I'm around my family, but losing all the social interaction, I didn't realize how much I need it. And, you know, frankly, how much my mental health could suffer from lacking it if I didn't really work on taking care of myself. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I'm really, really going stir crazy um, at home. I, I miss the human interaction. And then I didn't realize how much I relied on in my law practice 
for seeing all the attorneys and brainstorming with people and just popping into someone's office and talking out something, um, it's harder to do when you're uh, working from home because you don't know what people are up to. So you don't just call them in the middle of the day anymore. I mean, it's, it's a, uh, I feel like I'm not as creative as I was before. <laughs> yeah. Just not being able to go to lunch with each other on a random, you know, we would you, Sonia and I would have lunch together several times a week. I'd have lunch with sometimes with the other lawyers in the office and, just losing the lunches, uh, not only does that keep the human connection going, but all the different ideas we would brainstorm while we're having lunch. Uh, not being able to run into someone in the hallway and, and pick someone's brain or have someone pick your brain just because you're walking by or just dropping into someone's office. And so, yeah, I try to minimize some of that because I want to be able to focus on what I'm doing. But I would also have my door open sometimes so people could do that. And that's, you know, the number of meetings we have to schedule now formally to make up for the fact that uh, we're losing that hallway and lunchtime interaction is just overwhelming. Yeah, you know, um, I feel like I'm just in meetings constantly now. I, I don't feel like I was in meetings all the time before, but now just my entire day is scheduled back to back with Zoom meetings with staff, with uh, experts, with opposing counsel, with it, all kinds of people. Um, and I'm kind of getting sick of Zoom. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm, I am really glad we have it because, frankly, you know, our practice would have ground to halt and we would be in severe financial problems if we didn't have the ability to keep moving our cases, to do mediations, to do depositions. Uh, but, you know, we did a, a socially distanced meeting last week where we, we rented a room for, you know, 50 people and had five people in there so that we could be very far apart at a, we put a bunch of tables in a big square so we could all meet with each other. Um, and it just felt so much better uh, to meet with other human beings, even, you know, 10, 15 feet apart. Yeah, it was, it was nice. Um, and it was nice that we could get a space that could accommodate all of us and we could all feel comfortable and be really far apart. Luckily we all have really loud voices. So we hear each other <laughs> easily. Um, but Michael, why don't you talk a little bit about why we did that um, and what, what you got out of it? Yeah, so I guess kind of changing the subject a little bit from the dealing with the coronavirus to something a little more positive is, you know, we do, you know, we are usually on the road constantly. Uh, and especially between you, Sonia, and myself, at least one of us is out of the office multiple times a week. Um, and it's hard to really get together and focus on the business and you know, now that we're not going to have a, you know, any jury trials for the coming months, so there's that trial prep stuff is, is gone from our lives. All the travel time is gone for our lives. We decided to really take some time to dig deep and work on improving our law firm. Uh, and so people that have heard the podcast before know that I'm a huge fan of Patrick Lencioni, uh, who's a, a business writer who talks about organizational health and how you make your just your interactions between your people healthy and your, your communication within your law firm or your other business healthy. Uh, and one of the things he suggests is that we do a two day retreat and just kind of dig deep on, you know, why we, why we have our law firm, what our core values are, what our, what our focus should be. Um, and uh, you know, I was worried that everybody else would think it was a little hokey. Um, because it is, you, you do start off with some real philosophical stuff, but I think by the end of the two days, I think starting off with the philosophical stuff of, you know, why does our law firm exist? Why don't we just go get jobs somewhere else? Uh, really clarified the rest of the decisions we needed to make. Yeah, I was surprised at how um, complex the question was. It seems obvious when you just think about, well, we're a law firm, we do personal injury litigation, right? But it's, it's deeper than that um, because what sets us apart from everybody else in the industry, but, and why do we specifically want to work with each other um, and specifically at this law firm? So it was a, it was a complicated conversation that took two days really. Yeah. And, and for me, the question is, you know, why did I give up a job with an incredible income um, and a boss that treated me pretty well to go start my own law firm? It wasn't money. Uh, although we, I, I enjoy making money, I don't want to stop making money, but it wasn't just about the money because I can go work for someone else and make a lot of money. Uh, yeah. I can just go say, you know, I can think of a, a number of lawyers and just say, I don't want a salary, give me a percentage of what I bring in and a percentage of what I kill. And, you know, I've got enough business where I can do that, but it's not what I want to do. So why why is it? Is it purely 
because of ego or I don't want anyone telling me to do or is there some higher purpose? And I think, I think we found a higher purpose that, that united all of us. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, I think it was, it was a really great discussion and I've already seen the effects of having that two day offsite kind of refocus meeting um, in how we're organizing decisions and our own meetings um, amongst the management team. I think we lacked a little bit of focus before and now it's much more, I mean, we've, we've only had one, so, but it's much more focused. Um, I think, I think it was much more productive and more focused and it helps us make decisions easier because we know what our goals are with making each decision. And just, uh, and just to kind of give a little bit of, of, of context. So this is, uh, I guess we didn't come up with a slogan for marketing purposes and maybe, you know, I guess I can say it on the podcast. I'm, I'm hesitating a little bit because it's such a high standard. I'm almost in, it's almost awkward to talk about in public, yeah. but you know, the, the purpose of our law firm that we came up with was to provide what we call a special forces level of representation to plaintiffs. And that is, or to people who are hurt. And that is the, we don't want to just do a decent job. We want to do an incredible job. We want to give regular people the same level of representation that the largest corporations with the ability to pay the lawyers over a thousand dollars an hour get. Uh, and it's a really high standard and it's an aspirational standard. I mean, we're working towards it. We're not there 100% of the time yet. Uh, we're there sometimes, uh, but we're trying to get there. Uh, and then our core values that we came up with is, you know, we are constantly trying to learn new things. Uh, we share what we learn with others, uh, both outside the firm and with each other. And then we fight really hard, but we're not being a-holes about it. Uh, and, you know, the core values was interesting because we had to find out what our core values are that we actually embrace. Because if we come up and come up with a set that we don't embrace yet, that we aspire to, then that will sound very hypocritical to the staff. And they have to also be values that we're willing to live with. So if you... You know, for example, if we, you know, every plaintiff lawyer wants to say, well, our core value is safety. We're trying to make the world a safer place. Okay. So if a defendant says, I'll pay you a million dollars and do a safety change, or I'll pay you $5 million without a safety change, what are you going to do? I mean, what's your core value? You know, that was a difficult discussion to have because I think um, plaintiff's attorneys, they face a lot of backlash in society. And so um, people don't like us. They think that we're scummy. We think ambulance chasers. There's all kinds of, you know, tropes about plaintiff's attorneys. And um, I think often plaintiff's attorneys overcompensate for that stigma, right? And so they sort of, there's a common refrain, and it's not that these things aren't important, but it's, you know, for example, that we care mostly about safety. Well, we care mostly about our clients <laughs> and making sure that they get what they deserve. I mean, not, you know, safety is a nice byproduct of it. Um, you know, so I think it's uh, figuring out what the real focus is um, underneath it all. And we, we threw a bunch of them up on the board that we, we didn't, once we talked them through, we realized that they are, they're not quite right. But I think we came up with really great core values. And I think it really, really um, is those three things are at the heart of, what we do every single day. And I think there are, I mean, I think Andy Young, for example, who's been on our podcast out of Ohio. I think if Andy had the choice between, will you take a $10 million fee or will you put uh, side underride guards on all the trailers in the country, he would pick the side underride guards. A Andy is a, is dedicates so much himself to safety. And so his, you know, every law firm is going to have different core values. Every law firm is going to have a different purpose and a different reason for being. Uh, some may be more financial, some may be more safety oriented. But I think ours, we had to get really real and say, okay, we want to do good things. We want to make the world a safer place. But if we're going to tell our, our team that these are our core values, this is how we're going to drive all our decisions, we got to adopt ones that, that one, we already live and two, we're willing to, to live by even if it means making a painful decision. And, you know, just like the not being a-holes. If we have a lawyer or a paralegal who's really good and generates a lot of stuff, but it's going to be a jerk to people, they're going to have to change or find another place to work. And that, that might be painful one day. We don't have that problem with our team today. But when you have these core values, you have to uh, be willing to live them and, and make tough decisions, uh, even painful decisions based on them. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And so I think that 
now in the midst of social distancing and coronavirus and all that was the perfect time to do this two-day offsite um, because we were able to really, really focus on it without being distracted by the usual ordinary chaos um, of, of everyday plaintiff's work <laughs> that we usually have. Um, things have not slowed down. We still have a lot of business, but there's certain things that are, I guess, I want to say they're a, a little bit easier um, in the, in this time. So, for example, um, for hearings, we've uh, we've done them all through Zoom, whereas we have a statewide and a national practice. Um, so, you know, if we had a ten minute hearing, we'd have to travel to Chicago for a ten minute hearing, or you know, go five or six hours away for for a ten minute hearing. Then now we can just jump on Zoom and do it, and the whole day isn't lost. So. Yeah, I'm really hoping the courts continue to do some Zoom hearings after all this. Uh, it does save us so much wasted, not just traveling time, but then sitting around and waiting to get called sometimes in a, in a busy courtroom. Uh, yeah. I want to kind of go back to our two-day offsite. There's one other thing that really, you know, we came up with our with our business strategies, and um, well, I probably don't want to reveal all of our strategies we came up with. Uh, as much as I like sharing all of our competitive strategies on a public podcast, the one thing that we did is we, we picked what, which one of those things is most important right now. And for us, it was developing an elite team, making our litigation team, making our lawyers, paralegals, and medical coordinators as elite as possible, which is, you know, figuring out, you know, what do we need to do to arm them with the knowledge they need? Uh, what do we need to do to motivate people to hold themselves to an elite standard? Uh, what do we need to do to assess ourselves to see where we are now versus where we want to be instead of, you know, just trying to engage in some fantasy, like we're all, we're all already perfect. Uh, I think having that focus and starting every meeting with what our focus is kind of keeps us from, from drifting off because I think in the past we've come up with some really good ideas, but then either because of a crisis or because of other good ideas, we don't fully uh, finish them. And so we have all these kind of half, half formed, half baked projects out there. I think the picking the one thing that's most important and then saying for the next, for us, it's the rest of the year, that that's going to be the one thing that we focus on. Uh, I think it's going to be really helpful in achieving the goal. Yeah, I think too, um, everybody in the practice in managing a firm, but also in managing your cases, you have so many goals that it feels like, how do I how do I prioritize? And so by identifying that one goal, that one big focus that we're going to have, I think is really going to help us um, actually move forward and accomplish something more quickly than we ordinarily would. Absolutely. And it's I read another book called The One Thing. I don't know if you've ever read that one. It's by Keller, the guy that started Keller Williams uh, Realty. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it basically says, like, if you want to get anything big done, you have to pick one thing and focus on that one thing. And one interesting thing he says is you have to be willing to let small, recoverable, bad things happen in order to make your one good thing happen. Because if not, the all the little things will overwhelm you and keep you from get, ever getting your big thing done. Right. Which is scary in a law firm. <laughs> yeah. But. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the way we're organizing it, I think um, we recognize there's things that we have to continue to do and balls that we have to continue to juggle to make sure that there's, you know, a law firm. Oh, absolutely. The- it's not that that's all, the only thing we're working on, but we also make sure that that's the, the one most important thing that something happens every week by somebody moving forward towards that goal rather than, you know, two, two months have passed and we've not done anything to work towards our big goal. Right. I think that's uh that's something that's really, you know, when you focus on too many things at once, and I think that's been a problem I've had with some of the consultants we worked with in the past. If they've come in with like a hundred good ideas and they're trying to, trying to get us to do 40 or 50 things at once, and then nothing ever gets fully accomplished. I think, you know, finding out, you know, what is the one area that can add the most bang to your law firm? I mean, how could you, what's the one thing that if you have this, if you've done this by the end of the year, would make the most difference in your life or the most improvement in your law firm? And then focus on that thing. And it doesn't mean you still have to respond to motions. You still have to take depositions. You still got to get cases settled. But, you know, focus every week on what can I do to move that one thing forward. And I think that we're going to see, I think we're already seeing some real positive improvements just from that. Oh, yeah. And the the great thing is that people are really excited about it at the firm. 
So we, we told people what our goal is and what we're doing and they're, they're ready to help us achieve this goal, which is great. So it's not, you know, it's something that we want to do firm wide that everybody is working towards it and not just Michael Cowan doing it on his own. Yeah. And that's good because then when Michael, Michael Cowan is very easily distracted. I'm like a, like a dog. Every time I see like some new shiny object, I want to go chase after it. And, you know, having the, the other people help me stay focused on what we all agreed was most important is helpful. I just also want to mention, you know, not everyone who listens to this runs a, a, a larger firm. And, you know, these kind of uh, methods work whether you're working for someone else, whether you have a tiny little law firm or whether you have a giant organization, you know, just sitting back and figuring out why do I want to, you know, why do I do this? you know, what is it I want to do? And then what is the one biggest thing I can do to, that would make a positive change in my life over the next year? And then, you know, checking, even if it's just checking in with yourself every week, make sure what am I doing to move myself to this goal? Am I holding myself accountable to move myself towards this goal? Because uh, that's how we all, you know, improvement is all personal work. I mean, we're, we're trying to get a bunch of people to do personal work, but it's at the end of the day, if we don't have every one of our lawyers commit personally to getting better, then, you know, there's nothing we can do to make them get better. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, yeah, people that don't um, own or run a firm, I think that they can use, use these um, tactics for their own personal growth as attorneys um, and maybe not as attorneys. I mean, some people get into this business and realize that they hate it and it's not for them or that they're in the wrong practice area. Um, so you might be doing probate and not really like it, but you could switch over to personal injury and really love it. Right. Or vice versa. I mean, or vice versa. I was talking to um, my fiance the other day and he was asking me a legal question. He goes, God, I know you hate asking legal questions, answering legal questions when you're not at work. And I said, actually, I really don't. I could talk about this stuff all day. <laughs> I, I like what I do and I like being a lawyer. And so really it does not bother me when people ask me now, if people want like, you know, me to do something crazy for free, that's really complex and all this kind of stuff. That's annoying, but answering little legal stuff or, um, talking about laws and things like that. I love it because I really love being a lawyer. <laughs> yeah, I like answering legal questions. What I don't like is when my non-lawyer friends then start arguing with me because they don't like the answer. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, give me all the reasons why. <laughs> <laughs> I had an interesting discussion with my wife. She didn't like some of the intestate succession laws we have uh, involving a family situation with some half-siblings and stuff. And I'm like, you can get mad at me all you want. I'm just telling you what the law is. And, you know, the law is what it is. You can't change it. And just because you don't like it or you don't think it's fair or you think your situation is different, it, the statute is the statute. You know, some right. people don't like They don't like hearing that. Each year, the law firm of Callan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and company vehicle cases. If you have a case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us. We have experience finding potential defendants that other firms miss, and we've added millions of dollars to cases by finding these sources of recovery. If you have a catastrophic injury or death case where the policy limits appear to be insufficient, give us a call. If we can find another defendant, we can partner on the case. And if we can't, then we won't ask for any of the fees. You can reach Delisi Friday by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to podcast at triallawyernation.com. She will coordinate a time for Michael Cowan to speak with you in person or by phone to discuss the case in detail. And now back to the show. And so I just want to kind of share a little bit about, you know, what have your experiences been doing depots by Zoom? now that we've had a few months of doing it? So for me, it's a real mixed bag. So some of the depositions um, have been really, really great. They've been pretty seamless. Um, it's almost as if we're there in person. We've been able to share exhibits. I've been able to effectively cross-examine people. And then, um, you know, some of them are just not as effective. <laughs> um, and, and so, um, the things that makes make it not as effective, because I think that that's more helpful to people to yeah. hear, is um, if people don't have adequate technology, it's very frustrating for everybody involved. Um, and besides being frustrating, um, you're not sure if you're really getting all of the information that you would ordinarily get in an in-person deposition. So. 
For example, I've done one where someone tried to appear through Zoom on their phone. So literally the entire deposition, they're trying to hold their phone um, and move it around. And I don't know if you ever talked to someone on Zoom that's doing it through their phone and walking around. It makes you totally nauseous. I mean, it makes you seasick. The other issue is they couldn't see the exhibits on the phone. Um, So that was, I mean, the exhibits were basically useless uh, for that purpose. Um, Then uh, another thing that's really difficult is um, if you have voluminous exhibits. So if you have an exhibit that's like 20 pages long, um, scrolling through it on a share screen is really difficult, especially if you're not sure um, which part of the document you want the witness to refer to. So for example, one of the questions I commonly ask um, in safety person depositions is show me where in the manual it says this. Cause they say, Oh, we have a policy, you know, right. and there's something very powerful about them being flipping through the manual and saying, okay, well it's not here, but it's our oral policy. Right. Can't do that on zoom. Um, because they don't have the manual to flip through and show you that it's not there. Um, maybe we need to start making sure that we print and tell the defense lawyer we want to make sure they have these things. But then, then they know what exhibits you're going to use. That's the problem. Right. So that's what I've started doing, which has actually um, really, really helped uh, the efficiency of my depositions. So I've actually insisted that the uh, attorney either give me the witness's address where I can mail them a copy of the exhibits or, um, or they do it. Uh, and I don't care either way. I mean, we're willing to do it, but... You know, most of the uh, opposing attorneys prefer to do it themselves, obviously, right. not have me send them their witness something. But, um, you know, frankly, you put them in sort of a random order and I never end up using all of them because a lot of exhibits that I've pre-marked are exhibit are just in case exhibits. Right. right? So if someone acts like they don't know something or, you know, I need to refresh their memory in some kind of way, then I need to have that exhibit available. But I wouldn't use it if they know the answer. So, for example, I had a deposition the other day where um, there was video, there's video uh, dash cam footage, um, and one of the documents showed how they pulled the dash cam footage. So, I was going to use that if the if the witness forgot or acted like they didn't know what I was talking about or something, but they were able to answer all my questions about it. So, I didn't need that document. So, you know, I mean... I don't think it gives away a lot of strategy if, I mean, the the exhibits are the exhibits. (laughs) I I agree with you. I think most of the time, unless your opposing counsel is totally incompetent, they will have reviewed the documents produced in discovery and have some idea what, what's relevant. Uh, Right. So I I don't think we give away that much by doing that. Uh, It does mean though that you can't be prepping the night before the morning of, you have to put some thought into this days in advance. It, it, It changes your schedule. of of doing things. But my experience has been very similar that when everybody has a good broadband connection, it's a very nice way to do things. You know, we've had one where the court reporter had a bad, bad connection and that was incredibly frustrating because everyone could understand each other. The other thing that has just infuriated me is one of our court reporting services insists on, they run zoom and then they have a videographer videotape the computer screen. Um, so uh, for the video. Uh, yeah. and that is one, if they're charging us for that, that is just a total ripoff when zoom just would do the recording. Uh, but two, it's not as good of a video as the zoom recording. Oh yeah, no, it's ridiculous. What is, I mean, it's a waste of effort and energy. I think, um, one of the other really big surprising benefits of zoom, um, is that you have a much, if everybody has a good connection, um, you have a much clearer record than you ordinarily, I think, would have in an in-person deposition because only one person can be talking at a time on the Zoom, on Zoom. It cannot have two people talking over each other. So, for example, for an interpreted deposition, this has been working really well because people aren't talking over the interpreter um, and letting everybody finish before someone talks is the only way that everybody can hear. Um, and... So for that, it's actually been really, really helpful. Now, have you had any situations now that, you know, Texas, other states are starting to open up where you have opposing counselor like saying, okay, now we can do everything in person again, no more Zoom. Yes. So I've had, I've had that and I, you know, I don't have a great solution for dealing with it just yet because so far 
I've just said, we're not going to do that. We're no. And so people haven't given me a ton of pushback. Um, they want it. They want to start doing it in person. Um, and I tell people, look, if it's your witness and you want to be there with them, that's between you and your witness, but I'm not going to let you be in person with my witnesses. If I'm not going to be there. Right. Um, we're going to have to do it through zoom. And so, so far people for that, people haven't given me pushback, but I have had people going to their witnesses, um, and being there with them. So, um, you know, I, as, as things open back up more, um, I really, really foresee this as a really big problem that I'm not sure what the solution is going to be um, other than having, having the court tell us what to do. But honestly, if a court tells one of my high-risk clients that they have to do an in-person deposition, I'm just not sure, <laughs> sure what I'm going to do about that. Yeah, we may have to mandamus or do something else to figure out what I think right now the courts are all being pretty good, but the, my my concern is, is this is getting politicized. I mean, uh, the Barrett County, which is the county where San Antonio's in, are the chairwoman of our uh, Republican Party gave a big speech saying that all of COVID was a Democratic plot to bring down Trump and encouraging everyone to take off their masks. They all hugged each other on stage, uh, and my concern is if you get a opposing counsel or a judge that believes this you know, they're really going to push to go back to in-person and next to each other. And on top of that, they're going to be the ones that are most dangerous because they're not going to be socially distancing when they're not together. And, you know, they're the ones that are going to get us or our clients sick, which we're trying real hard to avoid. So I think right. we're going to have to, you know, I think we're just going to have to stand firm on this and just file motions and try to get Zoom hearings and say, judge, we're not, we understand things are opening back some, but we're not comfortable with our, our health. And then, see what happens. I, I foresee eventually being ordered to do something I'm not comfortable doing, but we're not there yet. Right. We're not there yet. Luckily, we're not there. We don't have to deal with that. And like I said, so far, most people are being pretty um, accommodating in that regard. Um, but at some point, it's going to fall apart. I, you know, one of the other things that's popped up is um, I have uh, clients that just don't have the technology to do a yeah. Zoom deposition. Um, and so what we've done at the firm is we've bought bought a firm um, tablet that has Zoom downloaded onto it and sent it to the client and that and, and um, a little hotspot so that they could do the deposition um, and we could keep the case moving forward. But um, I've also had the opposite happen where a defendant doesn't have appropriate technology to do a Zoom deposition and no one's willing to do anything about that, right? right. Like, I guess so, I guess the defendant are our tab and hotspot. You know, I don't think that they want to accept it. <laughs> so, right. That's the problem. Um, they don't, they don't, you know, unfortunately the friend of the defense is delay. And I don't think that that's what they're purposefully doing in the case, but I don't think it hurts their case to not let yeah, I think it defense. depends on the defense lawyer. I, I, I think there have been some people that have just been scared about doing something they're not familiar with. And that's been the problem. But there are people that I've seen where they are intentionally delaying things. And there's no doubt in my mind that's what they're doing. Um, and it's frustrating, but there's only so much we can do about it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, and frankly, you know, I do have feelings about wanting to do depositions in person again. I, I think when we all go back to normal, there's probably a group of depositions that I would feel very comfortable continuing to do through Zoom um, that I think I can do just as effectively. And then some that um, there'll be a lot less of a headache if I just do them in person. So it's not that I can't do them effectively through Zoom. It's that the preference would be to do them in person. Yeah, I could see like doing like corporate puppet witnesses, like 30B6 and stuff, where we're just trying to get our sound bites. We're not going to get anything out of them, which is what we can force out of them with the documents. Uh, defense expert witnesses, you know, maybe a truck driver on a non-disputed, you know, on a case where they're not really fighting about liability for the crash and you're fighting about whether there's corporate wrongdoing. Right. I can see doing those by Zoom still something where I'd want to get, you know, you've got disputed liability. I want to get people drawing. I want to get models. I want to get paper. I want to get, you know, something to show step-by-step step how a crash happened to try to get them to show something. Their position is not realistic or is silly. Uh, you know, some of the former employee type, depot types or whistleblower types. I mean, I, that's just some of those I think I'm going to want to be in person if I can. And so right. it's just one of those, 
Uh, I, I've got a case where we're, one thing we're really strategizing on, okay, is this one we want to wait to get in person or do we want to just kind of get it now while the person's willing to talk? It's just really a, a hard, hard okay. thing to figure out. It is. It is. Um, and, uh, you know, it's hard to know when in time we'll be able to go back to in-person depositions. I don't think it'll ever be exactly the same as it was before, but, um, you know, there's how people, long do you wait, right? There are people doing them now. I just, it's not, it's not something that you and I feel comfortable doing at this point. Right. right. It is so hard because we don't really know the answers. I mean, the CDC has gone back, you know, at first they told us it wasn't airborne. It's from touching, it was from touching surfaces. And then a week or two ago, they said, no, it's not from touching surfaces. After all, it's airborne. Then they said, don't do masks. The masks do more harm than good. And now they're saying everyone has to wear a mask. And, and I do think we should all wear a mask, but it's just, uh, you know, I think our some of the people in the medical establishment, not the political people, but had they have said this is what we think based on the data so far, rather than these are absolutes on things that they actually didn't know absolutely, uh, I think that that would have maybe made it a little easier now. Because I think some people are just, you know, they have lost faith because they're being told conflicting information, and it does make it so much more stressful for me to make decisions you know, on my own health, on my employee's health, on my client's health. And I even care. I don't want the defense lawyers or defense witnesses getting court reporters or video reporters. I don't want anyone getting sick. Right. But when we have so much contradictory information, I'll be honest, I go back and forth between saying, screw it, just let me get it. <laughs> I'm going to live or die because I'm going to get it sooner or later and trying to be super healthy depending on what time of the day it is. Uh, now, I've not gone out there and done anything crazy. I'm just talking about a mood. But I, I have been in the mood like this get it over with. Let me have it. If I die, I die. If I live, I live. Uh, that's not how I'm going to do it. I'm don't worry audience. I'm not going to go do that. I'm going to follow all the rules, but it does get frustrating when there's not, you know, an end, an end date when all of a sudden things are going to get back to normal. Right. Right. So Texas recently, I think it was, I can't remember which County it was, but one of the judges did sort of a, a zoom type jury trial. So it's not your, um, typical jury trial. <laughs> yeah, it was what they call a summary jury trial. So that it wasn't binding. It's just they did a one-day mini trial, but with a jury. And then they, they told them to mediate the next day to give the parties an idea how a jury would view the case. Right. Um, this is actually the first time, by the way, that I've ever heard of anybody in Texas taking advantage of this procedure. <laughs> I was told, I think it's Collin County. I, I was told by, I read somewhere on in a Facebook lawyers group, there's some judges up there that make you do a summary jury trial before they let you do a real one. Okay. Well. But they find that enough cases resolve after people see what yours think. Yeah. Um, so do you think that Zoom jury trials then are the wave of the future? <sighs> I don't know. Uh, I am scared to death of doing one. There's so much nonverbal communication that goes on. Uh, it's so hard to, you know, now people do zone off when you're trying a case too, but there's so many more distractions available when people are at home. Uh, I worry about having a representative jury pool when not all jurors have access to the technology and access to the, you know, childcare or whatever else they would need to be able to focus uh, and then to have a good signal. Uh, I think that's really dangerous if we only have people that have enough money to have, you know, the ability to spend eight hours a day without kids bothering you, the, the ability to have high definition internet and a good camera. Um, I just think there are other people that have a constitutional right to be on juries that would be excluded from that group. But it's really losing the, all the nonverbal communication and losing the group dynamics because the, the you don't get to form a group in Vordire. They're not having lunch together and walking around together. So I think the deliberations of 12 or six just kind of random people, as opposed to deliberations of a group that you've been able to form through the trial are so different. Um, that being said, I mean, we do focus groups. You see online focus groups. I don't know that the numbers turn out that different. I, I'm, I'm not, I want to see some research on this because we feel like all this stuff makes such a huge difference, but maybe we find out that, you know, it's all been, a sack of voodoo and that really the, you know, you put together a good presentation and people are going to kind of do what they do. I don't know. I have no idea uh, without seeing some of it. So, you know, I certainly would want to do a bunch of online focus groups and seeing how the numbers differed from our in-person ones before I do that. But I just feel like 
losing that personal connection we're able to get makes a difference. But then again, people watch law shows and stuff on TV and they get very moved by what they see. So I don't know. What yeah. do you think? <clears throat> you know, I mean, one of um, something that I was just thinking about as you were talking is I've never tried a case and I've never seen you try a case where you sit down in one place for the entirety of the case, right? Ooh, um, yeah. And so that would be required on Zoom. There wouldn't be really a way to get around that. Um, but almost every case that we've ever tried, we're getting witnesses to act things out. We're doing demonstrations of some kind. Um, we're ha you have to have multiple ways of giving people information. So maybe you're writing something on a board or you're showing someone a video or you're doing those things all at the same time, which is not as possible through Zoom. Um, and so keeping people's attention, I think, is going to be, plus with all their other distractions is, I mean, just, I think, going to be impossible. The reason that you can get moved by a, um, a TV show is because there's action, right? There's something actually right. happening. Whereas on a Zoom, you know, if you're uh, you know, cross-examining a witness and they're just sitting there on their video and you can hear the dog in the background and the dump truck going by and all that kind of stuff. Um, it really takes some of the wind out of the sails. <laughs> yeah, I think it really, we'd have to think a lot more. We'd have to really think, really rethink our visual communication strategy. Mm -hmm. I think we'd need a lot more visuals uh, than we'd have in a, in a courtroom. I think we need more slick production. I think that we'd have to, you know, which you can do on a big case, but on your smaller to medium-sized case could really be a problem. I think like deposition edits, you need to make sure that you're not just having a talking face, but you have a lot more presenting the exhibits. Maybe do that Mark Lanier three-camera thing where they're showing the questioner and then they're showing the witness and then they're showing an exhibit. So you don't have, I think, as Lanier said, I think it's no more than seven seconds of any one static person talking or image. Uh, and you have that constant, and even on the exhibits, you know, I think you need to have animation or highlighting or just something constantly catching people's attention, keeping them awake. Uh, and I think it really would, the, the need to really focus your examinations and get in and get out would be there. It'll be interesting. I don't know, you know, it's, it's, I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, if by the end of the year, we're really doing jury trials again, and this has been, you know, we've been a nine month inconvenience you know i could probably survive that if it's going to be years i mean we're either we adopt to zoom or we don't do it at all and then we're going to have to adapt i mean we've adapted to other things and you know i think what it is is that i think it's possible to move people through the video means because we see it done um, it's just it's going to be a different skill set that we're going to have to develop and we're also going to have to be some research and a lot of trial and error to see what's right and i certainly would want to start that on you know, I think if there was going to be Zoom trials, what I would do is I would find some other law firms that had some smaller cases and volunteer to try them for them uh, for a very small part of the fee so that I could experiment on a case that, you know, I don't have any cases at our firm where I would feel comfortable doing it because we've been selective enough on what we take that unless it's been done a few times, I'm not comfortable risking, you know, a significant case on something brand new. Right, right. Well, uh Strange time, and it requires creative solutions. <laughs> but if anyone out there has a Zoom trial that's going forward and they want someone to try it with them, I, email me. Uh, it might be fun. <laughs> as long as it's not one of my clients, I'm, I'm willing to give it a try, but uh, not, on, not on one of my babies. Uh, but I, I would like to brainstorm with you and either do it with you or, 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 or talk about the ideas, and then we could come on the podcast and talk about the experience. Cause, in fact, we probably ought to call Matt Pearson, the lawyer that did the Zoom trial. He's here in San Antonio, I bet he. Yeah, I bet he'd be willing to to talk about it. I'm sure yeah, a lot of he, people are wondering how it went. I know he was on Sorry de Lamotte's uh, group. You know, it's really a shame, Mallory. There, there is this, uh, there are so many great lawyers and great consultants putting out so much content for free or almost free right now. Uh, mm -hmm. And I have not had time to take advantage of any of it. I don't know about you. No, I haven't. And it is, it's really just devastating because I, you know, and the lawyers at our firm are, keep telling me about, you know, someone news doing this cool presentation about something that I would be really interested in generally, but I just, I'm having trouble finding, um, finding the time. I think part of it is because I am purposefully putting myself in meetings um, for a big portion of my day 
because I think over communicating right now is really, really the only way to make sure that things get done. Yeah, absolutely. Because again, you can't just go, your, your legal assistant can't just pop in or you can't just walk by his or her office uh, or your associate or anyone else you're working with. So, I mean, that's, that's been my experience too. Just my, my day is just a series of meetings. Uh, and then, you know, uh, shockingly enough, I thought I'd have a lot more time to get legal work done. I'm, I'm getting most of my legal work done early morning or at night again, like I used to when I was traveling all the time, just because my meeting, my day is so full of meetings. But if we don't do that, how do we all stay on the same page? I will say that um, one benefit of this is that I can have more interrupted, uninterrupted time um, to look at things or strategize um, about how I'm going to do something um, than I did when we were in the office because people would be popping in all the time and interrupting me. So I think that when we go back to the office, I am going to use some of the strategies that I've been using in working from home to try to isolate myself a little bit more because I find that spending uninterrupted time on something um, really makes the work product better. Yeah, I know that I feel like the depots I've done on Zoom have probably been better, but a lot of that is because I've planned out in advance all my exhibits, all my stuff, and then sent them to Sonia, because uh, the case I've been doing depots on has been the one that Sonia and I are working up together, letting her read through it, letting her give her two cents, which means I have to do it further in advance, and then waking up that morning with my additional ideas and everything else. But it's really, I think, come to better depositions and better strategy because I have the time to be strategic because I'm not just running around traveling so much. Yeah. Yeah. But I am I, getting, uh, as much as we need to have all these meetings and all the zoom, I am getting zoom fatigue. I am too. I am too. And just staring at a screen all day is, um, it, it's, that's not how we practice law before. So yeah, it's hard, hard for me. That's part of why I'm doing these from the back porch. Cause I just need some outside air and, uh, and I think, I think I'm going to take my first socially distance uh, trip this week. I might go see my parents in Brownsville, which is four hours away. Yeah. Uh, but just trying to figure out how to do that. But I just, uh, you know, opening up a little bit. It's been four or five months since I've seen my parents, and I feel bad about it. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, I think that's a position that most people find themselves in. Um, right now is, you know, you social distance for a while, but there's people in your life that you love that can't, can't ignore them for years. Right? Yeah. And <laughs> if, you're not, not if you're not going out in public and you wear a mask and you try to keep space, although, you know, I don't know that I'm going to say I'm not going to hug my parents. <laughs> may or may or may not. Well, we'll figure that out. You know, they're the ones more at risk. I'll let them make the call because right. you know I know that if it was me, if I had to choose between a small risk of disease and the ability to hug my children, I'd probably, if it wasn't going to harm my children, I'd take the hugs. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about, you know, as things are uh, reopening some, what are your thoughts about, you know, reopening our offices? I know some people are already blowing and going and fully open. We're still primarily working remotely. I know we were struggling with that today in a meeting uh, we had before this. Yeah. I think, um, you know, I really want to be back in the office. Um, And if I knew that we could do it in a way that allowed everybody access to the office that wanted to, um, I would go every day. But that's not realistic for our office space um, to make sure that other people have a chance who who need to also come in um, to do it. Like we, you know, we have some, we have individual offices in our office. Um, and then we also have some common areas where a lot of people work. And so, um, you know, I'm, I feel like we are being taking extra, extra precautions, at least compared to what I've seen other people doing. Um, so, you know, I feel, I feel like we're doing everything we can, which is. Yeah. I think, you know, we're, we're going to try to do staggered schedules where not everyone's coming at once and people aren't coming in when everyone else is coming into the building where we rent space you know, we're going to make sure we have cleaning supplies. We're going to require masks in common areas. We're going to not have everyone come in at once so we can limit the number of people in there. We're going to have all the people that work in cubicles. We're going to find offices for them to work in. Uh, and that means that, li- that really limits the number of people we can have work per day uh, so that we don't have people working in the common areas where other people are going to be walking by. 
But I think the biggest thing we're doing is we're making it voluntary. And, you know, we don't know the answers. None of us really know. And so just let individuals make their choices and make sure there's no consequence to those who want to continue working from home as long as they can. You know, they're willing to actually do the work. Yeah. I mean, we've been really fortunate. We have a great group. Um, and everybody has been really rallying to make the work from home work for our firm. Um, you know, we, we haven't had really any issues with productivity. I mean, you know, things are a little slower and you have to do things at different times of day. And there's, you know, there's some kinks that we're working out. But, um, you know, overall, I think that productivity is, is fine with people working from home. I really do want to experiment with this working from home more when this is all done and see, you know, who, who can work from home. And, uh, it, it may be a real benefit. We can give some of the employees that like that in the future, but we got to talk that out. So, you know, business has been uh, slow for most people. Uh, you know, just aren't as many people out on the roads, uh, for the car wreck practices and, you know, everything else is when people staying home there, you know, luckily aren't as many people getting hurt, which is great for, you know, great. But at the same time, it is slowing down. What do you, what do you see now? I mean, I see a lot more cars on the roads. Yeah, I've started seeing um, a bunch more cars on the road, a lot more traffic. Um, I think, you know, people are pretty much going back to work now. Um, so I think the traffic and all that is picking back up. I mean, we have um, some cases that we do that are workplace injuries and stuff, and that a lot of those kind of jobs continue to go, um, yeah. you know, even with social distancing. So you know, I don't, I think that there will be this three or four month slowdown in the business, but I think it's going to pick back up again. I don't. I think it's really going to pick up because I think people have been going stir crazy. I mean, if you look at like, as stores have been reopened, you've had fist fights between women in line, like eight, or I see videos like eight or 10 women, like in line at Ross and why you would fight to be at nine in the morning over a space in line at Ross. But I mean, there's just, and I've seen a lot of crazy driving, uh, I, I think that we're going to have just people are going to be going nuts as the bars reopen. Unfortunately, I think people are going to be going nuts. So I think, you know, gear up and get ready. I mean, we've, we've had a little slowdown. I think, I think things are actually going to hop up. And and the other thing is just in times of economic uncertainty and times when people are laid off and stuff, they're more likely to make a claim. I mean, the fact is it's a pain in the butt to, to have a personal injury claim. You have people digging into your life you know, you have to go to all those therapies and, you know, rather than just staying home and seeing whether to go away or not. Uh, you know, some people just don't want to deal with it all. Uh, they'd rather just suffer and, and get through it and not take care of themselves. I think that as in these economically uncertain times, people are more likely to, to file the claim, more likely to, to cooperate either because they're, they're, they've lost a job or they're just thinking I'm not, I'm not at a point where I can, I can risk this opportunity for additional money. So I, I do think there will be more claims out there, but I think there's going to be more crazy stuff, at least the next few months happening that are going to create cases. And same for like the workplace injuries. I mean, you know, as budgets, you know, get tighter, uh, I think the the pressure to uh, to cut corners on safety increases. And so, which is why you really need the liability system to keep that from happening. Uh, but how about caution? You know, is there anything on these uncertain economic times where, in deciding what cases to take and especially what cases to invest in that things you need to look at. Yeah. I mean, we, we just have to be careful. The uh, insurance companies are the primary source of where payouts for personal injury lawsuits come from and insurance company income is so tied to stock market um, and how it's doing. And, um, you know, it goes through ups and downs, but I think that there might be a situation where, a smaller insurance company might be more hesitant to pay out claims or try to hold on to their money longer than they ordinarily would um, because yeah, of the right, right now they have the opposite pressure because they don't have as many claims and they're still collecting premiums and they're to keep regulators. Uh, I mean, you see some like premium refunds and stuff because they're trying to keep the regulators from doing, forcing them to permanently lower premiums. Right. Uh, I think to me, the, the big things to look at is one, like on the trucking cases, commercial vehicle cases, look to see whether you have a real insurance company or a risk retention group. Because these risk retention groups, uh, there are several of them that are in insolvency. Some more are, are teetering on insolvency. And they're not insurance companies. And, and they typically have the smaller 
companies, the ones that are less able to pay premiums during hard times, so less able to stay in business. And the state guarantee funds don't apply if it's a risk retention group. So if they go out, you're out. Um, if a normal insurance company goes out, you have a, a state guarantee fund that, you know, Texas is up to 300,000 different states or different amounts, but you have something there. Uh, whereas if it's a risk retention group, you can end up with nothing. So really look out for how much you're going to invest in cases if you have a risk retention group instead of a regular insurance company and a, and a defendant that doesn't have the assets to otherwise satisfy the claim. The other thing I'm really looking for is, you know, companies that have a big self-insured retention or that self-insure that are in a vulnerable industry. Like I'm not signing up any new cases against automakers right now while they're not making many cars uh, because I'm just, I'm worried about a, a bankruptcy risk. I mean, I don't know how many can, I know that you can only get a discharge every so many years. So I don't know if they're eligible yet or not yeah. after the last round of bankruptcies, but Ford didn't file bankruptcy last time. And, uh, you know, some of these other oil and gas companies that might have a big self-insured retention, uh, you know, that's a big problem because if they file bankruptcy and they have, you know, they have a bunch of excess policies. If, if it's company money for the first million, the first five million, and that's not there, you know, for most cases, that's going to be pretty much what are you going to get out of it? Uh, so I think we have to really watch ourselves and make sure we don't end up putting huge amounts of time and money into cases that have a risk of, of being uh, eaten up because of economic conditions. Yeah, I will say that it does seem like the trucking industry is staying busy during this time. <laughs> they were, but uh, in April, I think freight was down 11%. Uh, you know, anyone working for like Amazon, Walmart, uh, grocery stores, they're doing really well, but a lot of other things are not doing so well. A lot of retail stores, a lot of that stuff. Yeah. Uh, and there have been some trucking company insolvencies. I forgot the name of it, but one trucking company has, you know, had over, I think, 3,000, 4,000 trucks. Uh, did a chapter 11 last week, but a lot of the little bomb and pop ones uh, are really, they're getting squeezed by the brokers big time on, on their margins. And a lot of them, if they're not carrying something that's in high demand are, are, are going to having real problems on, on, you know, in contrast, the people that are, you know, delivering for Amazon and for the grocery stores and for the people that have uh, the pharmacies, I mean, they have tons of business and they're doing really well. I hope you all find this stuff helpful. If you have any thoughts or any uh, any questions, please send them to us. You can either go to our Trawler Nation Insider Circle Facebook group or just send us an, an email. Uh, everything's in the show notes. Uh, we'd be glad to try to address that at a, at a future episode. But I hope everyone out there is, is staying safe, and I hope you, everyone is finding ways to continue to prosper uh, during these challenging times. You all have a good day. Thank you for joining us on Trial Lawyer Nation. I hope you enjoyed our show. If you're listening to this episode on a mobile device, please click on Ratings and Review and leave our show a five-star rating and write a review. And if you're listening to this episode from our website, please leave a five-star rating on the episode page. We'd love to reach more listeners, and doing this will help more attorneys find this podcast. You can also visit our website at www.triallawyernation.com to opt into our mailing list so you can stay updated on our new episodes. I promise we won't spam you. And thanks to your feedback, we've improved our podcast website. There's now a resources tab that you can click that shows you all the books we've mentioned on our podcast. If you have a Facebook account, please send us a request to join a private group called Trial Lawyer Nation Insider Circle. This exclusive group will allow you to hear about our guests before an episode airs, interact with the show, and get a sneak peek at some of the behind-the-scenes moments. I love to hear from all of you, and our Table Talk episodes are based solely on questions from our fans. So please continue to send us emails at podcast at triallawyernation.com. Thanks for tuning in, and I look forward to having you with us next time on Trial Lawyer Nation. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and company vehicle cases. If you have a case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us. We have experience finding potential defendants that other firms miss, and we've added millions of dollars to cases by finding these sources of recovery. If you have a catastrophic injury or death case where the policy limits appear to be insufficient, give us a call. If we can find another defendant, we can partner on the case. And if we can't, then we won't ask for any of the fees. You can reach Delisi Friday by calling 210-941-1301. 
or send an email to podcast at triallawyernation.com. She will coordinate a time for Michael Cowan to speak with you in person or by phone to discuss the case in detail. This podcast has been hosted by Michael Cowan and is not intended to, nor does it create the attorney-client privilege between our hosts, guests, or contributors and any listener for any reason. Content from the podcast is not to be interpreted as legal advice. All thoughts and opinions expressed herein are only those from which they came.